following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn your Bible to Daniel chapter 11. We continue in this series and will soon be concluding in weeks to come this fascinating and challenging book of the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Daniel. And as I was saying about this passage, I, I was thinking about uh, long endurance, endurance races and how nowadays it's common for people on long endurance races to eat energy bars and I'm not a big fan of energy bars, but I understand that they're not very tasty. But they are nutritious and give you a boost of energy and strength in a long race. And some passages of Scripture are just like that. They don't seem as tasty and edifying. We may question the value of certain portions of history and prophecy. And yet, the diet of God's Word is intended to nourish us and make us strong. Dr. Light was teasing me this week, saying that I went from preaching one of the easiest passages in Scripture last week from Titus 2 and 3 to one of the hardest passages in Scripture in Daniel chapter 11. But I'm convinced that as we mine the nuggets of this passage, we gain valuable insights and perspective, and we might strengthen our faith and gain confidence that God always acts for his own glory, and for the good of his people, through the rise and the fall of empires. So I will read, not the whole passage, but the first portion of chapter 11. I'll summarize the middle and then conclude the end through verse 35. And this opening is the angel Michael speaking to Daniel the prophet. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, meaning Daniel, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall rise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity." nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up. And her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and into the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious 
vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. And it's here where I pause to summarize from the movement from the kings of Persia to Greece to the breaking up of Alexander the Great's empire, the Seleucid kingdom versus the Egyptian kingdom. And the middle portion of the chapter is, is detailing the, the future history of, of the battles and the wars, the intrigues, the alliances happening between uh, the Seleucid kingdom in Syria and the Egyptian kingdom south of Palestine. And it's full of intrigue and strength and rising and falling and deception, deceit. And then in verses 20 and 21, there becomes a narrow focus on the rise of one ruler who we will know as Antiochus Epiphanes, the great um, antichrist-like figure that is predicted elsewhere in Daniel. And it leads up until through verse 28 and 29. I pick up here in verse 29 to see the impact particularly on the people of Israel and the glorious land, if we pick up in verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. This is the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. A Holy Father, these are obscure things, but nothing is hidden from you. And we pray that your Spirit might give us insight into these things of old, that we might understand them for our time, how to live out our calling to be a holy people set apart for the praise of your glorious grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people, no doubt, dreaded history class in high school and college, and even to this day, history may be a subject that uh, it leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Well, I believe that somehow, somehow our view of history may be influenced by the way that it was taught to us, a, a focus merely on dates and events that's not connected well to the broader narrative can lack something to be desired. And true, Daniel 11, like other historical and prophetical portions of Scripture, can, can read like dry history or reading a, some kind of repair manual. But if we step back and we take into account the the whole storyline of the Bible, when we recognize what these words meant to the original audience, they take on a new character. This was written by Daniel to a people in exile, a people who had once known autonomy and freedom, who could remember the glory years 
under the reigns of King David and Solomon. Now God's people were in submission to pagan rulers. And here Daniel's prophecy tells them to expect more of the same for centuries to come. In fact, they would be exchanged from one foreign rule to another many times over the coming centuries. And so we believe that Daniel offers these words to help God's people to live in exile, to be faithful to God and to be a blessing to their captors. You and I live today in one of the most powerful and wealthiest nations the world has ever known. But there are many who fear that there will not only be a decline of America's greatness, but a decline of the influence of Christianity in the West and here in America in particular. For coming generations, we don't have a strong enough confidence that coming generations will have the same favor, may experience less freedom, fewer privileges, even as our society descends further into moral chaos and dysfunction. How are we to live in such a time? And how are we to help our children and our children's children preparing them how to live well in exile? Earlier in Daniel, we learned from the examples of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of how to live faithfully and courageously even against pagan influence tempting to corrupt us. But here we come to this obscure prophetical portion of Daniel's prophecy with a reminder to live without compromise in a world that would pressure and tempt us to cave in to its will. God's Word gives us the strength we need to live under worldly rule under God's rule, and finally under the shadow of the cross. An issue that faces us when we come to chapter 11 is, first of all, to ask how are we to understand this passage? Is it prophecy? Is it history? Is it some combination of the two? And in fact, the the details, if you read a good commentary, it's remarkable to see the matching details with the history of what we know. As Babylon fell as an empire and the rise of Persia and the fourth great king referring to King Xerxes, who was wealthy and powerful, the likely husband of Esther, and then on to the rise of Alexander the Great, who would conquer Persia and have a mighty empire, and yet he would not pass that on to his own children. His two sons were murdered, and his generals parceled up his kingdom into four parts, And then we have this long history of a focus on Palestine and two of the Greek uh, dynasties, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemies in Egypt, just batting Palestine back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The invasion and the perversion and the the squeezing of God's people into the mold of, of Greek paganism. And so we have in, the, in this story, this passage, you, you find in scholarship the skeptics who, who want to insist that this was written in the second century, that it only pretends to be a prophecy, that it's really 
history, looking back in hindsight. That's how they get the details right. And in fact, uh, skeptical scholars will compare this to supposed proto-prophecies that were not uncommon in the ancient world where the Babylonians and the Persians and various, uh, various people groups would, would write supposed prophecies which were, in truth, histories in hindsight. Well, there's a couple problems with this approach. And the first problem is that such skeptical approach that denies the divine prophecy of Daniel is that it, it ignores the details. It ignores numerous details that we find in the book of Daniel that would have been very, very hard for a second century author to know. That these are things that fit much better within a sixth century context that were preserved for, for hundreds of years and very difficult for later generations to get correctly when compared to other ancient documents from that time period. A second problem with the skeptical approach is that it really doesn't address why second century Jews would, would bother to write this. A Jewish-Israelite culture that was adamant in preserving and accepting only Scripture that was clearly of divine inspiration. This text would not have made it into the Jewish canon, but would have been treated like the other intertestamental books, the uh, various apocryphal books of the intertestamental times, that were clearly known not to be Scripture. And, of course, a third problem with the skeptical view is that it, it is anti-supernatural in its bias, refusing to believe that the God who made the world, who redeemed Israel out of bondage in Egypt, who spoke by the prophets, who performed miracles, that this same God could not speak words to his servant Daniel to prepare God's people for the times that would come in centuries later. And so we would receive Daniel 11 as legitimate prophecy, revealing the purposes of God to bless and equip God's people for good to make kingdom impact during times of trials and tribulation. The angel Michael declares his intent in the opening verse when he says he's come to strengthen Daniel and to show him the truth. Daniel was weak. By this time, he was old, and he was bearing the burden of carrying God's revelation of judgment upon his people. Daniel was of a people weakened by sin and idolatry and now under foreign rule. Israel had been born in weakness a slave people in Egypt who had been redeemed by their gracious God who grew them up in the wilderness, who had led them by Moses and Joshua to be strong and courageous in conquering the land of Palestine and establishing a glorious dynasty through King David. The kings of Israel at one time received tribute from the surrounding nations. But Israel's weaknesses for false gods brought upon them the judgment and wrath of God, who punished them by sending them into a foreign land where they would both serve idols and serve his purposes among the nations. God took away his people's power 
and prestige. He put his people in a place of weakness, but he is still our God, who is advancing his own kingdom purposes. I believe it's in a place of weakness that God's people can truly see the folly of human strength and power. As you read through Daniel chapter 11, you find this repeated reference to strong, strength, power, dominion, in referring to the rise of various rulers among the Persians, the Greeks, and even the Romans as the Babylonian Empire is crumbling. These kings and rulers accumulated wealth. They raised mighty armies. They used warfare and political intrigue to gain power for themselves for a time. But it never lasted. Every single one of them fails and loses power. We recall Adolf Hitler boasting that the Third Reich would prevail a thousand years. So much for the boast of wicked men. Kings in vain conquer through power and cunning, and in the end it is all meaningless. Kingdoms rise and fall, and yet they are unstable because evil is unstable, merely following human will rather than God's will. The gods that they serve are unstable because they are not true gods. In fact, in verse 8 of our text, it refers to one king carrying off the idols, the gods of another king. All the false gods of the nations are but vapor. Commitments to ambition, power, fame, and possessions. In our text, we find at least six references to self-seeking pride, to intrigue and deceit, to characterize the phony nature of human strength and power. We Christians here in America do see a diminishing of power and influence. We live in a day and age in which the centers of power and influence in Washington, D.C., and New York City, and other places of media influence and the rise of educational institutions and even our courts, increasingly rejecting biblical ethics. A growing hostility towards Christian views on human dignity, freedom, human flourishing. Some believers respond with outrage, desperate that the once- Seeming control on American culture is now slipping from a once firm grip. I believe it's only a matter of time before gay marriage is the law of the land. I don't think I'm surprising anyone here. There are great cultural battles taking place, there are great shifts and turning of political will and desire. The recent ruling in the mainline Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA, in approving their ministers performing same-sex weddings just merely gives religious assent to what politicians and judges already want to do. I don't like it. I don't 
approve of it, but I refuse to be bitter. I refuse to be hostile. I, for one, will not shake my fist, but I would encourage you to hold fast to a God who is in control, who is greater than America, whose kingdom is advancing beyond the the whims and the wiles of those with power and influence and control over society, and learn to serve this great God faithfully during our season of exile. Early in the Babylonian exile, Jeremiah wrote a letter letter to the exiles in Babylon who were longing to come home, and Jeremiah was telling them, no, you will not be coming home for a long time. He gave them practical instruction to build houses, to plant vineyards, to give their children in marriage, to increase and not decrease, to seek the welfare of Babylon, to pray for its city, for if it prospers you will prosper. I believe it's the common tale in the history of God's people that God's people are often, more often than not, under pagan rule. In fact, you know, in early, the earlier chapters of Daniel that I've already referred to, we have these fine examples of people living faithfully, even when they lacked power, and at the beginning lacked much influence. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego point for us how to make kingdom impact, how to make strong influence over others by a firm belief in a sovereign God and a commitment to serve for the good of one's rulers and authorities with integrity and the fear of the Lord. Like these early believers, we can find ourselves overwhelmed with things beyond our control and the places where we work and where our kids go to school and in the affairs of state and government and local judicial orders, it can be tempting to try to align ourselves with the right powers, to grasp for influence, to seek favorable treatment. But I remind you that the advancement of God's kingdom is not aligned along political parties. The kingdoms of this world can neither destroy nor establish God's kingdom. All the kingdoms of the earth are mere tools in the hand of a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning and rules over the affairs of men and nations. In verses 5 through 20, we have this long lineage of wars and rumors of wars when it shifts focus in verse 21 and following to focus on Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, the one who is referred to in verse 21 as contemptible, a ruthless man who rose to power in the Syrian Seleucid dynasty in the middle of the second century, who seized power after his own brother, the the legitimate ruler, had died, grasping for power through intrigue and shady alliances. As we saw back in chapter 8, we hear in a summary form, verses 30 through 32, summarize his policy of Hellenization, this process by which Antiochus would stamp out 
faithful Israelites from the worship of the true God. He profaned the temple in Jerusalem. He put an end to the regular sacrifice. He committed the abomination of desolation, the sacrifice of a pig on God's altar. He forbid the practice of circumcision. He ultimately dedicated the temple in Jerusalem to the pagan god Zeus. Antiochus IV was a conniver. And here in verse 32, it it describes him as one who seduced with flattery those who would forsake the holy covenant. Antiochus was effective in Jerusalem primarily because he, he won over a body of Jews who sympathized with his cause to relax the law of God and to embrace pagan practices. These were his allies against the faithful people of God of Israel. Historians will tell us that the German churches were so watered down by liberal theology that they lacked the will to stand up to Adolf Hitler and merely went along, enjoying privileges, choosing to look the other way when abuse and persecution came upon the Jews and other peoples. Sinclair Ferguson writes that evil cannot gain a foothold in the city of God unless it find a spirit of cooperation among the visible people of God. Antiochus was successful in his double dealing in Jerusalem. They gave him an open door to wreak havoc upon God's people. You know, it is not inevitable that the church should be corrupted by the world. It requires a willing blindness. You know, the past hundred years or more, in at least Presbyterian history here in America, is really a battle between the preservation of biblical orthodoxy with those who would embrace the modern spirit. Over a century ago, many leaders among the theologians and the pastors began seeking the, the flatteries of academia, the approval of culture leaders in the newspapers wanting to be hip, progressive, willing to abandon their convictions about the supernatural, miracles, and the inspiration of Scripture. It was in response to such trends that J. Gresham Machen left Princeton Seminary to start Westminster Theological Seminary and to begin a new Orthodox Presbyterian denomination. And then it was decades later that faithful leaders in the Southern Presbyterian Church led a mass exodus out of the mainline Presbyterian Church when it was clear that the mainline church would not remain faithful to God's word or confessions. It burst our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, a denomination seeking to be faithful to Scripture, to adhere to the Westminster Standards, a faithful commitment to the Great Commission, believing and convinced that people are only saved through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We can expect more departures from the mainline church in response to the approval of same-sex weddings. 
I am grateful for our denomination and for the faithful men who sacrificed to give us birth. But I'm not naive. There are no guarantees that a generation or more generations to come that this denomination or other conservative denominations will be faithful. It requires God's people to preserve the critical teachings of Scripture, the nature of God, the deity of Christ, the Holy Trinity, the doctrines of justification and sanctification, to resist the urge that's common today to reject a historical Adam and Eve, to cave to the pressures of naturalistic evolution, to want to merge together a unbiblical view of human origins for the sake of flattering and receiving the approval of others who aren't committed to a biblical worldview. God's people must stand firm. Stand firm with God's word to resist the spirit of compromise on the essentials of our faith. Verse 33 tells us that in response to these things, that the people who know their God not only stand firm against compromise, they also take action. You see, it's not just what you say you believe. It's how you act. It's what you do in response to what you say you believe that matters. I spoke with a woman recently whose husband has been suffering congestive heart failure. And in contrast to a heart attack, which is an acute blockage of the arteries, damaging the heart, congestive heart failure is a condition of progressive weakening. And one can live with this condition as long as he or she is committed to constructive steps to prevent advancement and to preserve the health of the heart. This, like any other medical health threat, requires that the patient recognize the symptoms and then take corrective and preventative action. You cannot just sit back and ignore it. You must stand firm. You must take action in response. And for believers to be faithful in this age and age to come requires us. If we would preserve biblical teaching, if we would be a faithful witness to a dying culture, we must resist the urge to compromise on the essentials. And it's frustrating when there are people who refuse to take a stand. It's like a family trying to intervene for a loved one. A loved one who refuses to quit smoking and quit drinking and to change their eating habits, to exercise, to deal with a chronic ailing problem. Such is the case for people who profess to be believers but refuse to do anything to stand firm, to take action for the preservation of God's truth. So we live in a world lacking conviction. And this world needs believers in high places and in low places, people willing to be salt and light to direct the lost and the confused with the true word of God of how to flee the coming wrath and to find redemption in the precious blood of Christ. But 
it's not enough that we resist. It's not enough that we stand firm. It's not enough that we just say no to the things around us. We also must be a people who affirm what we believe, who are committed to showing people a better way. And that requires strength to live under the shadow of the cross. Verse 33 speaks of the wise. The wise among the people who will make many understand. You see, there, there were many who caved into the pressures of Antiochus, who got along with his program, who essentially lost their voice to say anything to God's people in the surrounding culture. Churches today who reject biblical truth really have nothing to offer, have nothing to say to people who are confused about God's will. Here at Westminster, I'm pleased to say that by preserving a strong stance, by showing compassion, that we have several people in this church who have left alternative lifestyles, who have left sinful lifestyles to find hope and encouragement from the truth and by compassion to know that by God's grace they can live a life that is pleasing to God. God's people are called to be wise, to be teachers, to be instructors, to be examples, to edify a decaying culture, to speak truth to people who are confused about God's design, his purposes for marriage and raising children, to offer a biblical teaching on finances and personal holiness and ethics and responsibility. All around us, people are lost, sinking into depravity on their path of destruction. And yet God's people are left here to teach, to influence, not to judge, but to help people find God's path and turn away from sin, idolatry, and the love of self to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a much better master than the rulers of this world. The wisdom of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very wisdom of God. God's word would warn Those of us who would be faithful, who would be wise, who would speak the truth, that we very well may suffer as the world reels in its sin and its pain. Verses 33 through 35 go on to speak how the wise will stumble and fall. And this is not a reference to moral failure, rather than they're falling victim to evildoers, to authorities who retaliate against them because they do not submit to their ways intimidating them and coercing them by the use of brute force, the threat of death, flames, imprisonment, and the confiscation of the property. This speaks of the atrocities that Antiochus would commit against tens of thousands of faithful Jews who were beaten, imprisoned, burned, and crucified. And God's people were able to rise up against them and overthrow his rule. We believe that these verses are a preview to Christian persecution that came about in the early centuries of the church 
and that various Christians have had to suffer for over two millennium, even up to this present day. God's people who are wise, who stumble and fall, who suffer from the world's afflictions, bear the likeness of Jesus. The wisest of all who came instructing the masses, serving the people, challenging evildoers, and showing people the path of how to know, love, and serve the true and living God. And in retaliation, Jesus suffered unjustly, was crucified in the hands of wicked men. The world did its worst to God's best. But Christ has overcome the world. And for believers who will be united to Christ, you and I overcome the world, its folly, its vanity, and its self-destructive ways. Suffering is not pointless. We are reminded that God is in control, and verse 35 assures us that God has a purpose. For God permits that those who suffer may be refined, purified, and made white until the time appointed for the end. Our suffering and hardship is not in vain. It serves a purpose of purification and sanctification to conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. In our day, temptation and compromise may not necessarily come from a chief ruler of the land. It may come by way of our own self-interest tempting us to be more committed to our own freedom, our own economic gains, than commitment to the kingdom of God. For those who go the way of the world, there really is no difference. Leaving one with nothing to say to a culture engrossed in material gain and commitment to peace and affluence I challenge the believers, the people of God, to commit yourself to being a blessing rather than a curse, to be a blessing to society, to outserve public servants, to outserve the society in our care for the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable, tutor children in failing schools, provide foster care. Respond more quickly and faithfully to natural disasters. Minister to women in crisis pregnancies, like our pro-life ministry did recently, helping to pay the fine of a woman who chose life for her unborn child. When we abide in God's strength, we are able to stand firm, to resist temptation, to take action, and to become wise teachers priest, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation called by God to make intercession for those around us. And yes, strength to suffer with dignity to the glory of God. It is good and right to pray for revival. Sometimes I pray for removal from this hideous world. We know not what the future may bring, but we know God is faithful has always preserved his people as a witness for his kingdom purposes. For this time, God has us in exile. And may he provide us strength to live 
under the world's rule, under his rule and under the shadow of the cross. To be a light, a witness, a preserving effect on society. And may we make impact, make impact. And as we suffer to be refined as with fire, that God make, make us shine like the sun in glory and splendor in the likeness of the risen Christ. To him be praise, honor, and glory. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you are working out your kingdom purposes in a world lost and astray and a rebellion. We thank you that the kingdom of Christ advances. And we thank you that you give us strength from your word to stand firm, to be a blessing, to be wise and holy in the likeness of Christ. May you strengthen us for a new week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.